Well, it's so wonderful to see everyone that was able to remember to set their clocks forward. And if you're as sleepy as me, I'm just kidding, I'm not that sleepy, but if, uh, I encourage you, fight through the sleep and worship the Lord with us. But for now, stand up, greet one another. We're going to play another song or two and uh, enjoy the Lord today.
Okay, is that close enough, Dusty? <laughs> okay, good morning. I want to welcome everybody this morning. I'm going to say praise the Lord. It's a beautiful day, and um, of course, Mark's not here today. Uh, Julie's not here. Zach got married yesterday, so he's going to—he's kind of worn out. So um, anyway, so we need to be praying for them as they get ready to travel back. Uh, what I want to do this morning is—is is I want to bring up a couple things that's in the bulletin. The first thing is I want y'all. And you don't need to pull it out now, but make sure you read this. This is about uh, one of the trips for the youth department, and uh, they're going to be doing hire a team. So if there's anything that you can do to help, y'all look at this and see if there's anything you can do, and you'll turn that in to uh, drop off with Jeff or Mark or Melissa Clark. And then inside the bulletin, a couple things. Next week's spring break. So just a reminder, there's no men's timeout on Tuesday morning and no service on Wednesday night. And then for Alicia this morning, she still needs workers in the preschool department. Uh, so if y'all would, look at that note that she has in there. And if there's any way that you can volunteer or if you know someone that may be able to that hadn't read it, be sure and let them know about that. And then the other thing is uh, on April the 7th, for those that are not members here that are interested in learning about Carpenter's Way, there will be a new members class on that, uh, on that day. So make sure and attend that. And overall, I think that's it. Uh, I want y'all to uh, just enjoy the service today, and I'm going to ask the guys that are taking up the offering to come up. Hopefully there's some doing that. And as they come up, I want to I pray for us. So, Father, we just thank you so much for allowing us to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we... Uh, prepare to start our service, that we enjoy the time of worship, that we lift, lift praises to you, and that you would uh, just open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears to hear what you want to teach us this morning. I pray for Kip as he delivers the message, the message this morning, that it would be your words, that you would give him a tremendous peace as he delivers the message, and that you would bless the message that he gives us this morning. Now, Lord, I want to pray for this offering. I pray that as we take this offering this morning, that... Uh, you would bless it to, to your work, and that we'd always remember that um, what we give is used in a mighty way to bring you honor and glory. For these things I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sing with us. God, my 
going back, I'll never be the same. Reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ.
song you may not have heard before. It's called Jesus Saves. Sing along when you catch on.
about it there's a big difference between you know I've never I've never led this conversation on a, on a Sunday before and there's a big difference between sitting you don't think about it there's a big difference between sitting out in the the uh, congregation versus standing up here you know you're, you're sitting out there and you're thinking man I wonder you know what's going on you're getting involved and you come up here and you're like man I just hope I don't have a booger hanging out of my nose and 
hope that it goes all right. It's just different, different concept. So I want to thank you all for being here today. Uh, as Robert mentioned earlier, Mark is out of town um, because of Zach's wedding. And periodically, uh, Mark will invite a guest to speak uh, just so you have an appreciation for how good of a pastor Mark really is. <laughs> and in case there's any question in your mind, that's what today is. So if you guys could pray for me today as this, uh, we move along, I would absolutely appreciate it. And let me pray for all of us. God, I pray that your word would be heard today. I pray that wisdom would be learned. And I pray that we would draw closer to you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kip Havard. My wife, Paula, and I have been members of Carpenter's Way for about 20 years now. We have three children, Hayden, Shelby, and Josiah. Shelby and Hayden don't live with us anymore, so Josiah is still here. Um, when my kids were young, I sat down and started kind of thinking to myself, what are, what are some of the things that as my kids grow that I want them to know, right? What I want to teach my kids. You know, for those of you who aren't parents, it's one of those things that's hard to describe, but when you're a parent, it, you, there's this overwhelming sense of responsibility that comes over you the second you see that child for the very first time. So about 15 years or so ago, I guess, I started writing down those thoughts about what do I want to make sure my kids know as they get older. And then over, uh, the, over the last uh, 15 years or so, I've been updating that document and trying to keep it updated as God. I felt like God was revealing things to me. And so today, that's what I want to share with you. I want to share with you what I feel like it is God has impressed on me so that as my kids grew older, these are things that I felt like they needed to know. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, um, what, what qualifications does this guy really have to stand in front of us today? And that's a serious that's a serious question, and I think that's a legitimate question. I am not an ordained minister, and I do not have any formal religious training, but I am an elder in this church, and I've been teaching for a number of years, and most importantly, I love God. So today, I'm going to do my best to share with you what I feel like it is God has made clear in my own life. And for those of you who disagree with me on anything, and I'm not going to have you send emails to Mark, I mean to, to Jeff, rather, wherever he is, do not send any emails to Jeff. You can send emails to Mark at cwbc.org and uh, complain about anything that I may say today. Uh, for those of you who listen to music, you may be familiar with the uh, George Harrison, Harrison song, Any Road. And he makes a statement in that song that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Along those same lines, the church has to decide where do we want to be as a church? Because you see, God's people, us, every one of us, we are the church. And if you look at yourself and say, I'm selfish, or if you look at yourself and say that um, I'm judgmental, and I can say those things because I'm both of them and more, if you look at those things, then it, at least partially, the church is also selfish and judgmental. That makes sense, right? Because without us, the church itself doesn't exist. The answer to the question, where do we want to be then, is really lived out every day in our lives. The words we speak, the actions we perform, 
we have a larger calling to Jesus, to God, and we are all really just pieces of his big puzzle. In case I haven't been clear so far, the reason I'm standing here is to say that if the church isn't healthy, it is because of us, if that makes any sense. If we aren't healthy as believers, then the church itself cannot be healthy. Now, having said all of that, in order for us to become the church, what we want to be, we have to put some important pieces together. There are some important spiritual disciplines that we have to establish in order to be the church God wants us to be, in order for us to be the individuals God wants us to be so that the church can be who he wants it to be. These are the truths that we need to understand and build on. Why is this important? Because unless we understand the spiritual disciplines that affect our physical lives and act on those in understanding, then our spiritual lives will suffer. The very first discipline that helps us is commitment to the Word of God. And I want to be as clear as I can about this early on. This is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And I'm going to be as straightforward as I can be about this particular discipline because it is important. And I have to communicate it that way. I believe that the Bible, as we know it, is the inerrant word of God in the original transcript. And it has to be read and understood and lived out as such. Now, some of you... Uh, here may be saying, well, duh, yeah, I believe that too. But I promise you there are some of you here who say, I don't really know that I believe that. Without going into a really long technical discussion around why I feel like the Bible is the direct and inerrant word of God, suffice it to say that if Satan can get the church to question the inerrant authority of Scripture, then Scripture can be minimalized into irrelevance. Now, real quickly here, I want to point this out before I go any further. So normally, Mark uses the screens for Scripture. When you see things up here, you'll, you'll see Scripture. Well, some of the things we'll talk about today are not Scripture. That is not. That's a kipism, okay? So we're going we're gonna to throw out some kipisms here today, all right? So this is one of those. That's not Scripture. But I felt like it was important enough. I know some people learn through seeing. I wanted to put that on the screen so that people could observe that and understand what that really means. Um, if you think about that statement, if you can get past the point where you believe that Scripture is the inerrant Word of God, it just takes time and everything else will fall. There are denominations these days who do not believe that Scripture is the inerrant Word of God. What they will say is that, well, yeah, God influenced the writing of Scripture, but Scripture itself has human error in it. That is a dangerous, very dangerous position to take. If you can't believe everything in Scripture, then you cannot believe anything in Scripture. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God, this is Paul speaking, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, those of you who may question the inerrancy of Scripture will look at that verse and say, well, see, Scripture is inspired by God. That doesn't mean that it's direct, God's direct word, but if you look at that word inspired in the Greek, 
and there are a lot of other translations that put this right, that, actually, that word actually means God breathed or from the breath or mouth of God. If you look at the, new, the modern King James Version, that same scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That, that the man of God may be perfected, thoroughly furnished, to every good work. It doesn't get any clearer than that to me in my mind. God gave us his word, written in a language that we can understand at this point, so that we can be perfected. For proof, we really do not have to look any further than the way Jesus looked at scripture. He quoted it constantly, and he referred to each word as the literal word of God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus held on to the very literal understanding of the Bible, and we have to do the same. Not once did Jesus say anything like, well, you know, that was Isaiah, and he kind of had a tendency to do his own thing, so you really can't believe exactly what he says. Let me tell you what he really meant. Jesus never did that. Every time he looked at Scripture, he held on to it as the literal word of God. And we have to do the same thing. Another reason that we can be challenged to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, quite frankly, is because it's more comfortable to us. Many people will rationalize, that scripture, will rationalize Scripture so that it fits within their existing lifestyle and perceptions. That would be like a police officer who goes to a crime scene thinking he already has figured out who committed the crime, and then he picks apart the evidence so that it supports what he already has decided, right? We simply can't afford to do that. Instead, we should always search, always be searching for the truth in God's word and then adjusting our viewpoint based on that truth. That's another kipism. God explicitly tells us that in Isaiah 55, 11. He says, that's how it is with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So in case you're not clear what that is saying, he's saying, I'm God, if I say it, it's going to happen, and you can take it to the bank, period. And that's how we have to view Scripture, is that God says something, we have to adjust our lives based on what Scripture tells us, not the other way around, picking it apart so it'll fit what we want it to say. In order for Scripture, also, in order for Scripture to be uh, used, we have to contextually understand how it fits into um, its original meaning. We have to understand who, what, and why before drawing conclusions about what God is saying. Who is the letter addressing? What explicitly is being said? Why is this letter being written? Too many times we'll take Scripture and apply it to a situation without truly understanding the application of the word. Let me give you an example. Anybody know Morse code? God's speaking to you right now. I don't know. How do I turn that off? Anybody? All right. I'll keep moving on. Uh, so I, I commonly see people who will reference Jeremiah 29 11. You see it on t shirts around. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, they are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a 
uh, to give you a future and a hope. And I can definitely, absolutely see where that gives a person hope if they are in a bad position in their lives. God absolutely, ultimately, in heaven, has a plan for their life. However, to take this scripture and to apply it to situations that we're involved in today can be very problematic. This was, a, um, this was something that God told his people after they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. He said, after 70 years, that I'm going to bring you back home. And this is a promise made to them to say, I'm going to bring you back home. This is my promise to you. This is not something that we can claim. This is not something we can grab onto and to say, well, I'm going to apply that to my situation today because ultimately if you do, you're going to be very disappointed when God doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you think that he should. Next, uh, after commitment to the word of God, another spiritual discipline we need is a healthy prayer life. In his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul simply says, never stop praying. Also in Ephesians 6.18, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, pray in the spirit and at all times and on every occasion. To be clear, Paul is not saying sit in a dark room and pray and God will take care of everything. That's not what he's saying. He is saying pray about everything you do. Go about your life, live your life, do it the way you should do, and you pray as you're moving along. Why does he say that? Because prayer is very powerful, and we'll talk about that in just a second. As humans, I feel like we only have an inkling of an understanding about prayer's ability to influence the spiritual world around us. For whatever reason in Scripture, God only chooses to give us glimpses into uh, certain truths, particularly as it relates to the spirit world. In James chapter 5, Paul tells us as much when he says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Great power. Your prayer has great power. Does it sound like the Bible is telling us to make prayer an important part of our daily lives? Absolutely, I think that it does. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that all three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have a direct function in our prayer life. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit, who lives in us, interprets what we say and then speaks directly to Jesus, who sits right next to the Father. Then Jesus tells the Father what's being said. That is why it is not important, as important specifically what we pray. There's no magic formula. The Holy Spirit interprets that for us. Our job is simply to pray, as if in a conversation. Because when we say things, the Holy Spirit will tell Jesus, here's what he really means by that, here's what he's trying to say, here's what he's, here's what he's exclaiming. That's the function of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if God is willing to designate all three pieces of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our prayer life, don't you think it is important to him also? Absolutely it is. A third spiritual discipline that I want to talk about is godly counsel. Proverbs 27, 17, in Proverbs 27, 17, Solomon tells us, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. I think we have a tendency to gloss over what's really being said there. Have any of you ever paid attention to the way iron sharpens iron? Let's watch this video real quick, this real brief video. 
there's an investment here that I want us to realize. There is an investment that is what I feel like is what's being said when, when Paul talks about iron, when Solomon rather talks about iron sharpening iron. There is an investment of heat, pressure, and time. God places people in our lives to help develop us the same way this craftsman is developing that blank piece of steel, gradually molding us through heat, pressure, and time. We need to develop honest friendships that can handle the truth that is needed for that godly adjustment. And let me carry that out even a step further. Godly counsel is also the function of the church. If we come or don't come to church each week to build relationships and reason among ourselves, if we only come on Sunday morning to listen to Mark or watch over the internet, then we are missing the biggest blessing of being part of the body of Christ. Now some of you are probably saying, I don't believe that. I don't like those people. I get it. Sometimes, unfortunately though, that says as much about us as it says about those people. Um, we have to learn how to deal with each other because we're going to spend eternity together. And if we don't figure it out now, then we're sure not going to figure it out later on. There are two pieces that have to work in that relationship. One person has to be willing, qualified, and prepared to invest in others. And the other person has to be willing and prepared to accept the investment. In Proverbs 27.6, Solomon puts, this, puts it this way. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. God puts people in our lives as a mechanism to help make us the people he wants us to become. And unfortunately, folks, that process, and I can tell you this from personal experience, is not always comfortable to either party involved. Oh yeah, also it's what Christ wants us to do. Did you know that it, it was Jesus' Jesus's wish for unity in the church? Right before Jesus was crucified, he was sitting in the upper room with his disciples, and the book of John tells us that Jesus knew that he was about to die. So he's talking to his disciples, and he's recapping everything with them that he wants to make sure they know before uh, he's gone. And then toward the end of that conversation, Jesus starts praying. And here we capture that prayer. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. And if you're not clear, that's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. As a result of that fact, we are... As a result of the fact that we are so heavily influenced, however, by the things that we surround ourselves with, and as a result of the fact that the world is so secular, Satan will use our natural emotions and bent for sin to drive us away from those who can help us when we need help the most. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who leave the church because they got their feelings hurt about something or another because someone was honest with them. Early on in my spiritual journey, I was very jaded by my perception around what I viewed as an overly critical, judgmental, and hypocritical church body. 
And I want to be as clear as I can on this point. There absolutely is that in the church body. Thank goodness not as much in this church. But there absolutely is that in the church body. But the body in general. Over time, I have begun to realize, though, that sometimes the anger people have is more a reflection of their unwillingness to be objective about their own lives. They are convicted about something and it hurts. Then instead of directing that anger inward as a method of self-improvement, they will direct that anger outward at those who are trying to help them. The, most, the more Satan can separate us from the things that bring positive influence in our lives, even if it is painful, the easier it will be for him to influence us in a negative way. The fourth spiritual discipline that we need to develop if we want to be spiritual healthy, we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle raging in and around us all day long. And we are, we're going to camp out here for just a little bit. Um, and this is, uh, this is gets, ride gets a little bumpy, so you guys put your seatbelts on. In Ephesians 6.12, 6, Paul tells us, we are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. What does that mean to us? Every day, we are fighting a spiritual battle in the words we speak, the actions we perform, and the thoughts we think, and we don't even know it. The interesting thing about this battle is that it is not necessarily a physical battle as we know it, even though it is a literal battle that manifests itself in physical ways. So what does that spiritual battle look like? It might look like a person who neglects to do something God wants them to do because they're too busy. It might look like a person who convinces, them, convinces themselves to do something immoral, saying that it really isn't that bad. It might look like a person who turns away from God because of something they hold against another believer. It might look like a believer who is living a sinful life, and instead of confronting their own issues, they lash out against the believer who cared enough to confront them about it. As a visualization of this spiritual battle, please understand that there are unseen spirits, both good and bad, that exist around us every day who are engaged in this warfare with us and against us and i absolutely believe they're in this room right now scripture tells us that this world exists but it only gives us brief glimpses of what that world looks like one of the most revealing and intriguing verses that gives us a real view into that spirit world is daniel chapter 10 here uh, Daniel is mourning. He has been praying to God for three weeks, for 21 days. And then on the 21st day, an angel comes to Daniel in a vision, and here's what, here's what that encounter looks like. Just then, a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, this is the, the angel that came to speak to him, Daniel, you are very precious to God, so listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up for I've been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling, of course. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Wow, what is that about? Let's look closely at what's going on here. Daniel starts off by praying to God, and then immediately God sends an angel 
to give a message to him. However, the angel who was, was coming to Daniel, and he was stopped by this, by this prince that blocked him. And then they fought for 21 days. And then after 21 days, an archangel named Michael, it says one of the archangels named Michael, he came on to take the, the battle on with that demon so that it could free that angel up. This lead demon is referred to as the, spirit, as the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. The word translated as prince in the beginning of verse 13 is the Hebrew word sar. Generally speaking, a more accurate description of the word sar would be a lead person. And then verse 13 tells us that this evil ruler is specifically guarding the area of Persia. Additionally, the good angel goes on to describe a second spiritual being who was opposing him as the spirit prince, and the New Living Translation doesn't do a good job of pointing that out, even though there are other translations that do. The word translated as prince at the end of verse 13 is the Hebrew word melech, a different word than was used the first time in verse 13. The complete word study dictionary explains the concept of the word melech is more of a king's consort than of a monarchical ruler. As a result of the meaning of this passage and the way that it is used in ancient Hebrew, here's what is happening in that story at a deeper level. The messenger of God who was speaking to Daniel had been oppressed in the spirit world by a satanic prince and his captain who were geographically overseeing the area of Persia. They were physically fighting in the spirit world to keep the angel away from Daniel. And in order for that description in Daniel to be accurate, there are two things which are important to this discussion. Um, first, the agents of Satan described here are organized in a hierarchy with different levels of authority. And second, they are responsible for different geographic reason, regions on this earth. Interesting, huh? Why are they organized this way? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they are constantly studying us to know our strengths and weaknesses so they can use them against us. Ephesians 6.11 tells us to put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. The devil is strategizing against us. Let me, let me pull those two sections of Scripture together for us so we can really understand how that applies to us. Satan has an organized group of underlings who are physically on this earth and they are studying us so they can know our strengths and weaknesses. They are working as representatives of Satan to formulate a strategy against us. Think about that. When your marriage is pushed to the brink of collapse, that is Satan's strategy. When you are spending an evening with your girlfriend, girlfriend or boyfriend and you happen to come into a situation that tests your moral resolve, that is Satan's strategy. When your children push all the right buttons and you react in a way that you probably shouldn't, that is Satan's strategy. When all of the pieces of a complex puzzle fall into just the right place so as to encourage you to do something that is against God, that is Satan strategizing against you. These types of situations happen far too often to be simple coincidence, and Satan will take years or decades to set them up. Having said that, let me be clear that we cannot afford for, the fact, for that fact to become a crutch as to, in our lives as to why we make bad choices. Ultimately, we are all responsible for the choices we make, and God will judge all of us based on that fact. 
That's a kipism. So let me recap. In order for us to become the church God wants us to be, we discussed four spiritual disciplines that are important for us as believers. Number one, commitment to the Word of God. Number two, commitment to prayer. Number three, godly counsel. And number four, understanding the spiritual battle that is around us. So you may be thinking to yourself, why is, why is this important? And I'm glad you asked. These spiritual disciplines are important because of the implications they have in how Satan interacts with us on a daily basis. That is to say, it is important for us to understand the spiritual disciplines I outlined earlier so that we can stand firm against the strategies of the devil. I want you to watch this video with me for just a few seconds, a second one. In this video, uh, the U.S. Marine Corps is conducting uh, live fire exercises in cooperation with the Australians and French at Bradshaw Field Training Area, Australia. Why does the military go into the field and have these training exercises? So they can be prepared, right? For exactly the same reason, we need to develop these spiritual disciplines in our lives so we can be prepared. Now, at the, this point, you may be thinking to yourself, what, what strategies? What are the strategies? How does Satan strategize against us? Now that we've spent some time looking at the spiritual disciplines that, that help us become the people God wants us to be, let's spend some time looking at the spiritual realities that Satan tries to use to keep us from becoming the people God wants us to become. For me personally, at least Partially understanding how Satan works in my life has been huge in helping me to be able to spot it and to defend against it. The first spiritual reality I want to talk about is called the worldview. In society, people develop different views of the world around them. The worldview, as it is called, determines the lenses through which we see our daily lives. As a result of this, two people can see exactly the same event and translate it differently. Additionally, two people can be handed the same set of circumstances, and we'll deal with those circumstances differently depending on their worldview. Here's a very straightforward example, a third video, of how our worldview can make a difference in how we view things. So some of you guys may remember this video from last year. Uh, it is uh, a video of some white police officers that are arresting uh, two black men at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. Some people will view that video and they'll say, man, I wonder what those guys did. Uh, they deserve being arrested. And some of you will view that and say, that is obvious discrimination. What is the difference? It's the worldview that you use that determines the lenses through which you see everything. And in this conversation, I'm not necessarily talking about how it relates to our view of race. I'm talking about how it relates to our view of religion and how God works in us. In our lives, we will always be confronted with situations that can be interpreted differently depending on our worldview. We also have to, for this to be true, we also have to understand that it is also our worldview that determines, determines how we react to those situations. By default, if a person does not have a regular time with God or regular exposure to God in a meaningful way, then they will, they will grow up with a worldview that is molded by things like friends, movies, television, music, celebrities, the internet, 
and other outside influences that are not looking to God for direction. Paul put it this way in his second letter to the church at Corinth. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, Satan, Satan is the God of this world. And things that are of this world are of Satan. I would encourage you, please, I beg of you, set aside 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, and pray and read your Bible. 15, 20 minutes a day. Get up early, stay up late, put it in the middle of your day while you're at lunch, and you'll be amazed at how God will speak to you through that time. Then once you begin to understand the truth of God's word, open yourself up to change in your life. Instead of trying to make God's word fit the lifestyle we have chosen, we have to be prepared to change our lifestyle so it is consistent with what God has chosen. And it's the second time I've said that, and I cannot be any more serious about that. You have to change your life to fit in what God says, not the other way around. God will ask us to make changes in our lives that are uncomfortable. Absolutely. He's done it in my life, and I can tell you right now, um, it's, I can tell him no. I'm not going to change. But I can tell you every time I pray that God, and I've said this in our Bible study class, every time I pray that God will show me the truth, I have got to pray ten times he will give me the strength to move forward in the truth. Because it is much harder, I promise you, to move forward in living your life the way God wants you to live than to know what that truth is. Another spiritual reality that is probably Satan's most commonly used tool is half-truths and lies. Let me give you a biblical example out of Matthew chapter 4. The Spirit's taken Jesus out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted, and as our story picks up, Satan is in the middle of tempting Jesus, and here's how that story plays out. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point at the temple. And he said, If you're the Son of God, jump off, for the Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they'll hold you up, with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Do you get what's happening here? Satan is using scripture to tempt Jesus. How interesting is that? And if Satan will do that for Jesus, I promise you he'll do it for you and me. Related to that, um, the best example I can think of where... Satan tries to make something look good, but at its root, it is evil, is Planned Parenthood. That's an organization that, in all honesty, it has some things that are helpful to the community, but that is an evil organization. And at its core, it should be viewed as such. We should not ever accept wrong because it is wrapped up in right and made to look acceptable. Third spiritual reality that Satan is that Satan will work in our lives to extend our comfort zone so that it will be easier for him to influence our lives. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, let me explain. Um, I used to work with an accountant who uh, had been an auditor in his previous job. And one time he told me that any time he had ever gone into a business and found fraud, it had never been a situation where the person who was, who was 
who was stealing the money had actually uh, gone into it with the intent of stealing. It was always a situation where they needed $5 for lunch, they took it out of petty cash, and they were going to pay it back, and they forgot, and then time went on, and they needed $10 for their kid at school, they took it out of petty cash, and they forgot, and time went on, and they needed $100 for their electric bill, and they took it out, and they intended on paying it back, and time went on, and before they knew it, there was $20,000 missing. He said, anytime I ever went into a situation and found fraud, that's what happened. That's what I mean by Satan extending our comfort zone. He'll put us in a situation where we're comfortable and then edge us out just a little bit and then get us comfortable there. And then edge us out just a little bit and get us comfortable there. And then before we know it, we're finally at a spot where we turn around and we say, man, how did I get here? Have any of you, any of you, have you ever said that to yourself? I've used those exact words. How did I get here? It's because I allowed Satan to influence me to move me out of my comfort zone when I should have, should have set specific guidelines early on that would not allow me to ever get past that point, ever. We have to set, comforts, we have to set those boundaries in our life. Otherwise, if we don't, I promise you, you will turn around and you will say, man, how did I get here, right? The next spiritual reality we need to understand is how Satan will create strongholds in our lives. Think of a spiritual stronghold uh, a lot like you would a castle or a fortress. A castle is a location where a person can fortify themselves against the attack of an enemy. Likewise, a spiritual stronghold is generally a habit that Satan has developed in our lives where he can stand against us when we try to fight against him. As a result of that fact, um, Habits and addictions can become very strong. They become a place where Satan can ride it out. Be aware that even though it is not always true, Satan will start building strongholds when you are very, very, very young. And parents, that happens a lot earlier with your kids than you can imagine. I have heard alcoholics say that even though they do not, even though they've been sober for 20 years, they still consider themselves to be an alcoholic. This means that they are addicted to alcohol even though they stay away from it because Satan has developed a stronghold in their lives. One of the biggest challenges with strongholds is that many of them have become socially acceptable. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, anger, selfishness, gluttony, etc., etc., etc. When society accepts sinful action as acceptable, then it becomes much easier for Satan to influence those he is attempting to attack. And it's very difficult, very difficult to understand and know how Satan will use certain things in our lives. I knew a guy one time who was in a car wreck and took pain pills, and then before he was healed, he was addicted to the pain pills. It was something that was intended for good in his life. Related to that, uh, you should pray for wisdom every single day. James 1.5 tells us that if anyone is deficient in wisdom, that you should ask God for it, and he'll give it to you and he will not rebuke you for asking. That is a promise to us. You want to know a promise that you can hold on to? You can, you can take that promise right there. God tells us, ask for wisdom, and he'll give it to you. And I pray for wisdom every single day that God will put people around you to help you understand what is godly and to help give you strength. The next thing I want to talk about is, uh, number five, is the wrong place, the wrong time. This is the last one. 
I don't know an easy way to explain this other than to say that Satan has a way of putting us in situations that can test our moral resolve. Uh, for example, I've worked in different men's groups over the years, and I, it's almost humorous. Um, I've found so many men that struggles, and that's not the part that's humorous, so many men that struggle with issues of lust. Uh, this isn't an issue that develops when they were old. It started out when they were young, and it continued on into adulthood. Uh, then within these discussions, this is, this is uh, where, it's, where it's funny, it's, it's common for men to talk about uh, dependencies on pornography. And as you listen to them talk about, they will find pornography as children in the weirdest of places, in streams, in caves, on the side of the road, washed up on the beach. It's crazy. Satan strategizes against them to put things in their life that help develop those strongholds early on. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but a dirty old man did not start out that way. A dirty old man is nothing than a dirty young boy who grew up and got older. You've got to set boundaries early on in your life, and you've got to talk to your kids about setting boundaries in their life. Because I promise you, Satan is working to strategize against not just you and your family, but also against your kids. Once we understand how Satan can work, it then becomes very important for us to insulate ourselves from those tactics. To, to quote Clint Eastwood from the movie Magnum Force, a good man always has to know his limitations. And that's the truth. You have to know your limitations and put boundaries in place that allow you to not fall for Satan in those times. If you struggle with alcohol, stay away from alcohol. Stay away from situations where you know alcohol will be. If you struggle with issues of lust, stay away from those situations where you know you'll be in a bad spot. I mean, it's as simple as that. As we bring our uh, time here to a close, I want to leave you with the same question I asked you when we started off today. What kind of church do we want to have? In order to answer that question, you have to ask yourself, as I said, what type of person do I want to be? Preparing for this conversation today was an interesting experience for me. Uh, as I told you early on, this is a conversation that's been 15 years in the making. I started putting these thoughts together when my kids were young, when my oldest kids were young, in an effort to identify what I wanted to make sure I taught them as they grew up. And to be honest with you, if um, you sat down today and asked them if, if, if I did a good job of teaching these things to me, to them rather, except for my one child who's been forced to sit in the audience and listen today, the other two might actually say, you know, probably not. So the honest answer is, I, I still have not probably done the job I should have done, but overall, what am I going to do about that? Well, to quote once again, quote a movie, quoting the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and there's still a lot of opportunity for me to finish the good fight. The question I have for all of you today is, how many of you are going to fight with me? So today, if I could have all of our elders come up front as we uh, finish up our time today. Don't everybody stand up at once. I know we have some because I talked to them beforehand. Any elder, if we have any elder in the building, could they please come to the front? Thank you for leaving me there. I absolutely appreciate it. Turn up your hearing aids. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, if any of you, as we end up today, if any of you have any questions 
about what it means to be a member of Carpenter's Way Church, I'd invite you to come down and to speak to some of our elders. If you're interested in having a personal relationship with Christ, if you don't know what that means, I invite you to come down afterwards and talk to our elders. If any of you need somebody to pray for you, the prayer of a righteous man is strong. I invite you to come down and to speak to our elders. So let me pray for us real quick. And our Bible study, I told you guys we would end on time. Our Bible study uh, classes will start in about 10, 15 minutes. Father, I hope that you were glorified here today despite uh, my human weaknesses. I ask that the things that I spoke were heard because, God, I know they are, they are wise from you, even though um, the human body may always, may, is always weak. God, we love you very much. We pray, God, for wisdom, for guidance, for direction. Lord, you're the only one who can give. Help teach us those things that are honest and those things that, that you would have us know. Lord, we love you very much. In your name we pray, amen.